Blog Talk Radio.
Ladies, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today uh, is uh, Sunday, uh, February the 18th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the condemnation of Israel by the African Union at their summit taking place this weekend in Ethiopia. Fighting is intensifying in Gaza and Khan Yunus. We'll have details on that as well. Hezbollah in Lebanon took control of an Israeli Defense Forces drone. And the Sudanese military factions are now engaging in sabotage against uh, the people of Sudan as well as the other factions. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on African American History Month with segments on the Nat Turner Rebellion of August 1831 and the rise of the African American Women's Club Movement of the late 19th and early 20th century. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned, and uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the Um Kaltum Orchestra, and uh, this is from a radio um, recorded uh, concert uh, from 1956. Uh, Let's listen in. نحدثكم وأم كلثوم خلف الستارة الحمراء وسط باقة من الفنانين الموسيقيين يستعدون لرفع هذه الستارة بعد لحظات لكي يقدموا لكم الفقرة الأولى من سهرة الليلة والباقة التي تقدمها أم كلثوم تحتوي على ثلاث أغنيات أولاها هذه الأغنية العاطفية التي سمعتموها قبل ذلك رأي الحبيب كتبها أحمد رامي ولحنها محمد الأصبكي أخذ الجمهور في هذا المسرح البسيط أماكنه سواء في الصالة أو في الشرفات وأخذوا يتطلعون إلى هذه الستارة الحمراء التي سوف ترتفع بعد الحظات عن أم فلسوم هذه الأغنية العاطفية التي يقول مطلعها رأي الحبيب ووعدني يوم وكان له مدة غايب عني حرمت عيني الليل من نوم لجل النهار ما يطمني صعب علي أنام أحسن أشوف في المنام غير اللي يتمناه قلبي سهرت أستناه واسمع كلامي معاه واشوف خياله قاعد جنبي من كتر شوقي سبقت عمري وشفت بكرة والوقت بدري وإيه يفيد الزمن مع اللي عاش في الخيال واللي في قلبه سكن أنعم عليه بالوصال طلع علي النهار سهران في نور الأمل وغنت الأطيار لحن الهوى والغزل وفضلت أفكر في معادي وأحسب لقربه ألف حساب وكان كلامي مع أصحابي عن المحبة والأحباب من فرحتي بدي اتكلم واقول حبيبي موعدني لكن اخاف لا يكون بينهم 
مظلوم في حبه ويحسدني هجرت كل خليل بيا وفضلت عايش مع روحي احسن يبان شيء في عنيا من كتر خوفي على روحي ولما قرب معاد حبيبي ورحت قبله هنيت فؤادي على نصيبي من قرب وصله ولقيتني طايل من الدنيا كل اللهوه بس اللي كان فاضل ليا اسعد بلقاه لما خطرضها على فكري حير امري والقرب سبب تعذيبي ولقيتني خايف على عمري لا يروح مني من غير ما اشوف حسن حبيبي الستاره توشك ان ترتفع الان عن كوكب الشرق السيده ام كلثوم وفرقتها الموسيقيه خلفهم توجد باقتان من الورد بعث بهما المعجبون بفن ام كلثوم تشاء الليالي وتشاء الظروف ايها الساده ان تكون حفله ام كلثوم في شهر رمضان وان يكون شهر رمضان في هذا العام كله اعياد اعياد قوميه واعياد دينيه واعياد وطنيه وهذه هي الاعياد الفنيه التي ننقلها اليكم مع الفن في مختلف الوانه ليله مع المنوعات وليله مع ام كلثوم اخذ الحاضرون ينظرون الى هذه الستاره واستمعوا الى هذه الدقات التقليديه وانعكست الاضواء وركزت على المسرح بينما اخذت تنطفئ رويدا رويدا في الصاله وانطلقت من وراء الستاره بعد ان هدات الاصوات في الصاله تلك النغمات الرقيقه من انون محمد عبد الصالح ومن العود والكمان لاعضاء الفرقه الموسيقيه ثم رفعت الستاره عن ام كلثوم رأي الحبيب كتبها رامي ولحنها الأصبي تقدمها كوكب الشرق
وبعد أيها السادة فقد غنت أم كلثوم أغنية رأي الحبيب كتبها رامي ولحنها الأطبي سنلتقي مرة أخرى ومرة ثالثة مع أم كلثوم في هذا المسرح الذي نحييكم منه ونرجو أن تكونوا قد استمتعتم بهذه الباقة الأولى من باقات أم كلثوم التي تقدمها لنا في سهرة الليلة الميكروفون يعود الآن إلى دار الإذاعة فإلى هناك دار الاذاعه بالقاهره مستمعين في كل مكان كنا مع كوكب الشرق ام كلثوم في مسرح حديقه الازبكيه وكانت الحفله يوم 3 مايو سنه 1956 واشهدت لنا كوكب الشرق راي الحبيب باشعار احمد رامي والحان محمد الاصبغي اذاعه الاغاني من القاهره Welcome back. And that was uh, the Umkaltum Orchestra from the North African state of Egypt uh, from a live concert uh, broadcast over Radio Cairo in 1956. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, February the 18th, 2024. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Leaders at the African Union Summit in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa yesterday condemned Israel's offensive in Gaza and called for the immediate end. Musa Faki, the chair of the African Union Commission, said Israel's offensive was the most flagrant violation of international humanitarian law and accused Israel of having exterminated Gaza inhabitants. Uh, Faki spoke alongside Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shakye, uh, uh, who also addressed the summit. Quote, rest assured, we strongly condemn these attacks that are unprecedented in the history of mankind, unquote, said Faki. Uh, he said this to the applause of all delegates uh, at the conference. He went on to say that we want to reassure you of our solidarity with the people of Palestine. Azali Asumani, uh, president of the Comoros and the outgoing chairperson of the African Union, praised the case uh, brought by South Africa against Israel at the International Court of Justice while condemning the genocide Israel is committing in Palestine under our nose. The international community could not close is eyes to the atrocities that are committed, that have not only created chaos in Palestine, but also have disastrous consequences in the rest of the world, Asumani said. A quarter of Gaza's residents are starving because of the war, which began with Hamas' assault, um, and of course, which began uh, with the assault uh, on Hamas uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces uh, that has been going on for many, many years. And of course, after October 7th, Uh, it escalated. Strongly denies uh, committing a genocide in Gaza and says it does, does all it can to spare civilians and is only targeting Hamas militants. It says Hamas's tactics of embedding in civilian areas makes it difficult to avoid civilian casualties. Now, during last year's African Union summit, an Israeli delegate uh, was unceremoniously removed uh, from the plenary hall amid a row over the country's observer status at the continental body. And uh, in other news, 
Uh, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza continues to inflict heavy losses on the raiding Israeli occupation forces. This is according to an article that was published uh, earlier today by Al Mahadine. Various uh, Palestinian resistance factions continue to engage in fierce confrontations against Israeli occupation forces in Gaza City and Khan Yunus amidst ongoing Israeli attempts to fortify their positions and advance to further locations within the besieged uh, Gaza Strip. The Al-Quds Brigades, the military wing of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement, shared scenes of its fighters targeting Israeli occupation soldiers and vehicles west of Gaza City. Abu Khalid, uh, the spokesperson for the martyrs Omar al-Qasim forces, the military wing of the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, announced that the group's resistance fighters continued to confront and engage with occupation forces and their vehicles on the battlefront in uh, the Gaza Strip. He emphasized that the resistance is inflicting on the Israeli occupation military significant losses in personnel and equipment and targeting Israeli positions and gatherings with mortars and rockets. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Israeli media revealed that Hezbollah took control of a drone belonging to the Council of the Israeli Metula settlement uh, purchased several weeks ago. Israeli media reported uh, earlier today that Hezbollah succeeded in taking control of a drone belonging to the Council of the Israeli Matula Settlement. Rabbi Hamashlag, uh, the Israeli KAN channel's correspondent uh, in the northern uh, of northern regions of the occupied Palestine, mentioned that Hezbollah carried out multiple operations throughout the day, including opening gunfire on Israeli sites and launching drones. However, he noted uh, that the most dangerous incident was launching an anti-armor rocket or shell towards the Israeli uh, Shatula settlement, uh, which targeted uh, the security building at the settlement's entrance, causing severe property damage. And uh, finally, in the Central African state of Sudan, both the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces senior lieutenants have been sanctioned by the United States and the United Kingdom to prevent them from assessing their financial system to feed the war. Sudan's war has displaced more than 2 million people into neighboring countries, but even there, they are too crowded to get any good service. The year-long war has devastated the country's infrastructure, triggering warning of famine and millions of people inside and outside the country. Sudan's war is turning into an economic sabotage as rival factions seek to undercut one another, leading to the clear sign that a winner from this conflict would still bear the loss. Ten months uh, since the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces launched a war, the character of this conflict has morphed into such a way that original factions have amassed support from French militia groups expanding the scale of interest. Yet the biggest problem now is destruction of crucial economic infrastructure, uh, such as telecom mast and transportation routes, leaving some of the regions cut off from the outside world. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service 
It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, uh, just go to our website, and um, that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And that is panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, 2024, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
The music of uh, Phyllis Hyman uh, with the track entitled Be Careful How You Treat My Love. And this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And right now we're commemorating African American History Month, uh, the 98th anniversary. A holiday started in 1926 as Negro History Week by Dr. Carter G. Woodson of Virginia. And uh, this uh, segment deals uh, with the lifetimes and contributions of the legendary Nat Turner. Uh, The Nat Turner led rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia of 1831. August of that year uh, remains a cornerstone in the historical development uh, of the African people in the United States. Let's listen uh, to an interview uh, with a descendant of uh, the legendary Nat Turner discussing his family history as well as the rebellion of August of 1831 in Southampton County, Virginia. Let's listen in. Hello, I'm Lanisha DeBartolaben. President and CEO of the Northwest African American Museum. On behalf of the museum, I welcome you to our Descendants series, an evening with the great, great, great grandson of Nat Turner. We acknowledge that we are on the homelands of the Spokane tribal people. We recognize the indigenous peoples who have been dispossessed and displaced from their ancestral and spiritual homes and the taking of their land through colonization. We honor with gratitude the land itself, the waterways, the indigenous people, and their ancient heritage. We are grateful for and honor our African and African-American ancestors who survived the Ma'afa, the Middle Passage, who endured the violence of slavery and the indignity of racial oppression, who had the courage to pack up and head north and west to the northwest, who blazed trails for us to be here and to be ourselves here. We acknowledge and we take action. As we begin this program honoring the sacred life, legacy, and lineage of Nat Turner, we call out the names of the ancestors who shared the same spirit of liberty as Nat Turner, those like Harriet Tubman, Dred Scott, William Grimes, Solomon Northup, Henry Box Brown, William Wells Brown, William and Ellen Craft, Frederick Douglass, Henry Bibb, and all those unnamed ancestors who stood up against the inhumane system of slavery. We remember them. We honor them. We are because of them. Nat Turner was a hero, a freedom fighter. He stood up to the violent system of slavery for his humanity and for ours, and said through his actions by any means necessary, he would be free. We are here to learn his story, to pay tribute to his courageous sacrifice, 
and to honor his legacy with his direct descendant, Mr. Bruce Turner, who is with us here today. This program is about reckoning with this shared past. It is about remembering. It's about never forgetting the pain, the difficult decisions, the trauma they endured. We owe our ancestors our attention. Most of all, this program and history itself is about our healing. It is about the decisions we are making today to become free and to free others. It is about finding our way forward, rising above every obstacle faced in life. On this exact day, 191 years ago, November 11, 1831, Nat Turner gave up his life for the cause of freedom and liberation. Today, be inspired by his steadfast commitment to humanity, his resistance to oppression, and his faith. Today's conversation will be moderated by Kiantha Duncan, president of the Spokane Branch NAACP. She is a tireless champion for community, for crucial conversations, and for change. Thank you all for joining us to learn about Nat Turner, the one who never stopped believing in and pursuing freedom. Ms. Duncan? Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon to those of you who are here and those of you who are in the audience at home watching us as well. Tonight is a very special night. When I say special, I mean very special. I have had the last 24 hours to get to know Mr. Turner, and I think that you all will find him very interesting. He has lots to share with us, lots of information. Mr. Bruce Turner was born in Southampton County, Virginia, and he currently resides in Virginia Beach, Virginia. His lineage to our great, great, great Nat Turner uh, was one in which he can share with us something that we would never know because he gets to share what he knows from his family's perspective as well. So we're looking forward tonight. Since the mid-1990s, uh, Mr. Turner has researched the history of Nat Turner and the Southampton slave insurrection of, 19, of 1881. He received information on the Nat Turner legend form from his grandparents, from his great-grandparents, from his aunts, and from his uncles. We would like to play for you a very short video featuring Mr. Turner. Bruce L. Turner, the great-great-great-grandson of Nat Turner. Bruce Turner's story is a story of spirituality, hope, and the black struggle for freedom and justice in America during slavery. His great-great-great-grandfather, Nat Turner, was a leader, preacher, and an enslaved man who would lead a rebellion of enslaved people against their oppressors in 1831. Nat Turner's rebellion of 1831 made a lasting impact in the decades to follow. Abolitionists following his rebellion exalted the virtues of Nat Turner as a crusader against the evils of slavery. Nat Turner influenced freedom fighters like Frederick Douglass and others. Turner's legacy will continue to be remembered and honored through his family that continues to share his story through oral history and documentation. 
His great-great-great-grandson, Bruce Turner, spent most of his childhood living in Southampton County, whereby he received an abundance of information on the Nat Turner legend from grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Since the mid-1990s, Bruce has devoted serious research and investigation into the history of Nat Turner and the Southampton slave insurrection of 1831. Nat Turner continues to live on through the life and legacy of Bruce Turner as visionary, liberator, legend. I want to thank you all here in Spokane for allowing me to come and talk with you today about Nat Turner. He was a man whose efforts to correct the terrible wrong did define a moment in history which we all study today. His period in time was when a man as a slave was not human. I want you to keep this in mind. He was a thing. He was just a piece of property. He was a chattel that could be bought and sold or whipped and killed at the will and whim of his legal owner. And only after years of study and following the Christian Bible did he try to change that status and he relieved himself of being a slave as well as to free all other people of a slave. And in all, doing that, Nat passed on to the American public three little words which exist still today, and that was all here and now. Nat wanted all people, all slaves, to be free. He wanted them to be free right here in this country, not in some place sent somewhere else. And he wanted it now, right at that time in August 22, 1831. Today, we all live that motto of Nat Turner. And if you take this with you, remember, Nat's motto is all here and now. <laughs> Good evening. All right. So I, thank you. I'm super excited to talk to you tonight. I have enjoyed getting to know you over the last few days and learn about not just your grandfather, great-great-grandfather, but about you as a man, because I think the work that you do, really relates directly to your grandfather. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about when was the first time that you understood that you were the Nat Turner's great, great, great grandson? Well, in answer to your question with that, there really wasn't a time that I didn't know. Uh, as far back as my memory goes, it was always talked about in the family, but we were told don't tell anybody else. Mm. Because living in Southampton County, Virginia, uh, I was born back in 1948. In the 50s, the 48 and the 50s, segregation was still pretty, was heavily entrenched in Virginia. Uh, a lot of the descendants, the white descendants of families that were killed, lived right next door to us. Mm -hmm. We lived on a farm, and they lived on the farm next to ours. So the concept of accepting Nat Turner and openly talking about it was not encouraged. Uh, we used to go out to the places where the homes were attacked, and my grandparents, as well as my aunts and uncles, used to would have times that we would identify with what Nat Turner was, as well as who the people were that came after him. Hmm. So in answer to your question, I don't ever have a memory of not knowing about Nat Turner. Did that cause a sense of fear for your family still living in Virginia Beach? What was that like? In Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach is 80 miles from where okay. I, I grew up at in Southampton County in okay. a little town called Caper. So um, Capron is where I learned about Ned, and I lived there until I was a teenager. Um, going to school, elementary school, as well as through high school, beginning in what we call middle school, the schools were segregated. 
So we only had a little bit of, of net turnover in the history. The county would not allow it to be taught in the history books. Okay. There was only a little marker on the side of the road that says this is where it happened. At. And so it was among the, the black families in the black community to where the history of what Nat Turner was, what he did, was um, passed on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does your great-great-grandfather's work show up in your work today? And I know that you're retired now, <laughs> but you do a lot of really amazing things, and so tell me how those two connect. Okay, well, in the early part of my uh, growing up, I learned that to free your mind was the number one thing. I always used to admire how Ned had taught himself how to read and write, mm -hmm. that he refused to let himself be held down just because he was a slave. Also, too, growing up on a farm, there was a lot of work to do. And one of the ways to get out of work was reading. So I always made sure I had a book in my hand every day. <laughs> to keep you from doing any work. Okay, <laughs> to keep got me it. from doing any work. Got it. Particularly out in the fields, picking cotton, you know, pulling in corn, peanuts. We, on a, our farm was a working farm. Okay. And so everything you could imagine a farm work was available for us to do. Um, my father was in the Navy, and as such, I had an opportunity to travel and sometimes to go to other places. Uh, like I say, in my teen years, I was some of the students who were selected to integrate the schools. Okay. So I went Do you remember that? Yes. Tell me about it. Integration was a very painful process. A lot of the white families used to would stand in front of the schools and throw rocks at us and spit at us. The highway patrol on my first day of going to an integrated school had to open up a corridor for the black students to walk through. It was only three black students in this whole school. And I remember when I was in high school, there was only 11 black students of about 1,600 students in the school. And one day in the classroom in history, when we hit on the Nat Turner story, the teacher asked me, what was I related to Nat Turner because we had the same last name. So you can imagine what that was like to be able to respond to that. At first I thought about, well, I wouldn't say that I was because mm -hmm. it was easy to be just anonymous in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But I always felt it was right to stand up and to admit who my heritage was. And so I did. I told what him, did you say? I told him that, yes, he was in my lineage, that he was my great-great-great-grandfather. And I explained to the class the lineage that came to me was through my father, Herbert Turner, Jr., through his father, Herbert Turner, through his mother, Fanny Turner, who was the last person born in slavery in 1856, to Nat's youngest daughter, Charlotte, who was born on May the 30, 1830, the year before he was executed. And that uh, we were proud of our heritage. And the white students in the classroom did express some of those real classic I would say emotions that mm -hmm. come along with misunderstanding. But I think they learned something to that day, that Nat Turner was a real person mm -hmm. and that he wasn't something myth. And that we would, you know, people were there and he was worth learning for them, learning something about. Well, that's one of the things that I was looking most forward to talking to you about mm -hmm. is that he's not a myth. It's not a myth. You have the real story about what yes. really happened. And it's, as it's portrayed in books and movies, it's very different. I yes. learned that from you. So we would love to hear a little bit more about that. But before we do that, I'd like to know this. Today is the day. Mm -hmm. It happened today. On his death. On his death. It mm -hmm. happened today. Right. 11, on, a, on August the 30th, on that, on November the 11th. 1831, just a little after 11 o'clock, according to the jailers, he recorded it because he had to record it in order to um, present to the court that mm -hmm. the prisoner had been executed. Mm -hmm. and that was taken from the jail to the place of execution, which was a large sycamore tree in the town of Jerusalem. Back today, but today that town is now called Courtland. 
Portland. Okay. Right. That tree existed there until about the 1960s. And he was hanged. He was allowed to carry his Bible that he had in his in, that he had when he was ex, when he was originally captured, and that Bible today is in the African American Museum in Washington D.C. Uh, I was there when President Obama uh, opened the magazine, opened the museum, mm -hmm. and one of the first articles in which that everyone looked at was Nat Turner's Bible. Mm -hmm. I've looked into that Bible myself. It has some of his original handwritings inside of it. Wow. It's a little small Bible that fit inside of his pocket. And after he was executed, the city of, of the, not the city, but the state of Virginia paid $375 to the relatives of Nat's masters because he had killed them. $375. Because the state had executed a valuable piece of property. Wow. So even in death, he was still viewed as property. As I said before, slaves were not human mm -hmm. in terms of the, the laws of Virginia at that time, and even in the, basically in the laws of the United States. They were things. They were not even citizens. They were not. They had no recourse. Right. It was amazing that they actually gave Nat a trial before they hanged him. He was captured on the 31st of October, and then his ex, his trial was on November the 5th. Mm -hmm. He was charged with murder, sedition, treason, and insurrection. Mm -hmm. And I say 11 days later, he was executed. What do you think he'd be saying if he were alive right now? Would he? Would the world be where he would think that it would be? Because I feel like some days I think we get very far and we've made lots of movement and things have happened. And then other days I'm like, we're still in, Yeah, you know. Well, I think that if Nat was alive today, he would be very pleased with the progress. Please. Uh, pleased with the progress that his family has made. Okay. Okay. He went from having absolutely nothing, from having, couldn't even have his own, he didn't even have, say, possession of his own body. His he actually got married, we believe, at around about 1818 or 1819. His wife's name was Cherry. Okay. They had at least five children. And out of those five children, Charlotte, the youngest one, was the only one that lived that had children that we know of. We know that one of his daughters named Sally was sold to North Carolina, but we don't know what had happened to her. Nat himself and Sherry were sold, split up and sold separately in, in, 19, in 1822, in June of that year. The bill of sales of those records are still on the court records. And that was sold for $450 to a man named Tom Moore, and Cherry was sold for $175 to a man named Yields Reese. So sold for $450, but 450. then upon death, they they refunded right. $350. $375. $375, okay. Because don't forget, there had been a little depreciation from the time when he was sold in 1822, Wow. but he was 22 years old. And in the slave system, a 31-year-old man was considered to be past his middle age. So he was not as valuable in terms of working in 1831 as he was in 1822. And he was considered not as valuable because the average lifespan for a black person in was about 40, 45 was years old. 40, 45. Yeah, wow. that, that, was, that was lucky if they got that far. Right. A few live beyond that, mostly it was, it was averaging out at about 40 to 45. Okay. What can you tell us? Now, this is, are you listening? I'm listening. What can you tell us about Nat Turner as a man? Okay. So not what we've read about, not what's in the textbooks. What can you tell about him as a man, as a okay. person? Well, I will give you the beginnings of it. Okay. As a child, Nat was actually, his real name was Nathaniel. That's what he was born in 1800 to Benjamin Turner. Okay. Who was a prosperous generation, third generation slave owner and uh, farmer. 
His next mother was named Nancy. She was an African slave. In the bill of sale, when Benjamin, Tanner, when Benjamin Turner purchased her, described her as being an olive brown complexion African female of not of the usual Negro region, which means that most likely she was from the East African side of Africa. Nat lived under Benjamin Turner's ownership for 10 years, from 1800 until 1810, when Benjamin Turner died. Mm -hmm. It was here that during that time period, Nat Lander taught himself how to read and write. He taught himself, he started learning about the Bible. He had at least one grandmother who was alive during that time. Her name was Bridget. Most likely he was Nat's um, father's mother, mm -hmm. because Nat's father had escaped somewhere before Nat got out of childhood, but we never knew his name or what did he look like. Mm -hmm. but, he, but Nat referred to his father twice in his confession, so we can draw the conclusion that he did know about someone as a father figure. Um, it was also Bridget who said a phrase, of, she was coined a phrase rather, that supposedly passed down with Nat through his lifetime. Okay. She said he, was, he had too much sense to be raised, and if he was, he would never be of any use to anyone as a slave. Too much sense to, to be, be raised. raised. And, and if, if he, he was, was, he would be of no use to anyone as a slave. Wow. When Benjamin Turner died in 1810, he will, he will net as well as Cherry and some of the, about 17 other slaves over to his son, Samuel Turner. And then he let Nat live with Samuel Turner from 1810 until 1822. It was during this time period to where he began to get the feelings or say this, the messages from God to become a preacher. Mm -hmm. So Nat was a preacher. Mm -hmm. He also was a carpenter. He was a metal worker. He knew how to make tools. Okay. He wasn't just a field worker. He worked in the fields too. But he had many other skills. Mm -hmm. And most of the people in that area recognized him as being a man way with education beyond not only the slaves, but mm -hmm. most of the white people. Mm. You have to take into account most white people at that time couldn't read or write either. So to have a slave in their presence who not only could read the Bible and preach the Bible, but also could do many other skills, was considered to be something of an asset. And so Samuel Turner allowed him to go about from plantation to plantation or from church to church to preach, which he did. He preached to the slaves in the area, and that's how he got to be known very, by many people, and he was accepted as a man of God as well as a man of his word. Hmm. And then from Samuel Turner died in 1822, Net was that's when he was sold mm -hmm. to Tom Moore, mm -hmm. and so actually physically by the name and by the the laws of Virginia, his name of Nat Turner changed to Nat Moore, mm -hmm. but Tom Moore allowed him to keep his name of Turner. And, and why do you think he did that? Uh, I think Tom Moore probably felt that Nat was an asset to him. He could get extra money from him from his preaching, as well as from some of the the neighborhood. He could also hire Nat out. He hired him out to other farms to do metalworking, to do um, you know, farming work, or to do uh, specific buildings, and, you know, things like that. So Tom Moore could realize economically mm -hmm. there was an advantage to let Nat keep his name. Mm -hmm. Do you think he ever feared that with Nat having so much information and being able to read that there would be what ultimately came? I don't think so. Because mm -hmm. Tom Moore owned Nat from 1822 to 1828 when he died. Okay, six years. Six years. And then when he died... Tom Moore's youngest, only son, Putman Moore, who was about six years old, five or six years old, inherited Nat as property. Mm. And he became Nat's new owner. So at five years old, he owned a 26-year-old, a 28-year-old man, wow. as well as 17 other slaves. 
But during that time, Nat was now well-established as a preacher. Mm -hmm. He had also began to receive signals from God that said that slavery was wrong and he was ordained to change it. He said that he had received signals that said that the first would be last and the last should go first, mm -hmm. and that he should take on the yoke that Christ had borne for the sins of men. Hmm. So that that's really interesting because most people, I think, when you think about Nat Turner and you, you think about him from the lens that you read, right. there is this dangerous person who did this very dangerous thing. But yeah. what you are saying is he was actually a man of, of faith. He was a man of faith. He was a man of God. He believed in the Bible. Okay. He believed, One of his favorite uh, passages in the Bible was from the book of Matthew. Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. Mm -hmm. He always used that as a phrase of opening up his, his sermon, so he said. Um, Benjamin Turner, with his first master, had provided some land for a church to be built that was known as Turner's Church. And that was allowed to preach to slaves in the backyard of the church. Uh, he preached there from probably from like 1820 all the way up until 1831. His last sermon was the week before the insurrection. He preached to a large crowd of slaves in the backyard at Turner's Church, mm -hmm. and it was there he also gave out coded messages to the slaves that he was going to start the insurrection. On the inside of Turner's Church on that same day, a Reverend Richard Whitehead, white minister, preached to the white congregation, and they would all meet up again later on in another week mm. under different circumstances. Mm. But um, net as a man, insurrection only came to him because he felt that he was directed by God to, to take an action to end slavery. Now, how do you think, because I know we talked about this, but what do you think it was that made him interpret that message when the Bible said, thou shalt not kill? Thou shalt not kill and talked about slaves and, and yeah. having ownership over people. Right. So how, did, how do you think he got there? Uh, it was a slow process. Um, one of the things that Nat did mention in, the, in his confessions from the Bible, that he who knows his master's will and does it not shall be mocked with many stripes. That is from Luke, I think, chapter 12, verse 11. Um, Nat believed in the Bible. He studied it all the time. Mm -hmm. He fasted on fasting days. He baptized people. He himself was baptized as a Christian in 1825. He and a white man named Ethred Brantley baptized each other in the crowd in front of white people and black people. Mm -hmm. And at that baptizing, Nat claimed that he was a free man because he was now a disciple of God. I don't know how well that set with the white population. In which God became his master at that God point. God became his master. Uh -huh. and, but he still had to do the work of his earthly master. Uh -huh. In 1827, he decided to run away from Tom Moore. But he stayed away for 30 days and he came back on his own because he said, that's when he said that God told him that he who, does his, who knows his master's will and does it not. Hmm. So he became back because he was ordered by God to go back into slavery. But he began to get signs and signals that told him that God wanted him to end slavery and would use him as the instrument to do that. So that's the only time when he started to go from being a very complacent man to becoming one who sought out militancy as a way to end slavery. So let's talk about that militancy. Okay. The rebellion. The rebellion. Tell me. Well, the rebellion actually only happened for three days. Mm -hmm. Ned had planned it for almost three years. He started in 1828, according to his confessions, of deciding that slavery had to be ended, but he didn't know how to do it at first. So what he did was he started studying the area as he would go about from farms to farms, 
to uh, preach to the slaves. He started preaching to the slaves about the Old Testament philosophies of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and the right for vengeance, mm-hmm. particularly for a wrong like slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was his way of preparing the slaves so that they themselves would know that victory could be won mm-hmm. if they followed him. And that this was the will of God. And this was the will of God. It was not profit. It was not economics. Uh-huh. He was not looking to take over anything. Uh-huh. He was looking to end slavery so that all slaves would be free. He wasn't looking for his own freedom. And that was one of the things, I think, that separated Nett from a lot of people who did rebel or show some type of signs of you know, opposing to slavery. They only looked out for their own freedom. Mm-hmm. He was looking out for the freedom for everyone, man, woman, child. It didn't matter. And what you could understand someone looking out for their own freedom. You yes. know, nobody wants to be a slave. Right. So that makes sense, but knowing that he even had that compassion in his heart at that time, that I'm not just going to free me and figure it out for me, but I'm going to take everybody, everybody. with me. This freedom is for everyone. Right. And everyone would also have to bear the same sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, that was, to me, was a tremendous uh, advantage, or say, not advantage, but a skill, for him to be able to convince people whose whole life had been told that they were not worth anything, mm-hmm. that they are, you know, they had been separated from their families, they were not allowed to own anything, and to get people to believe that they could become free men and free women by following the orders that he received from God. Mm-hmm. And then to back that up, in February of 1831, there was a total eclipse of the sun. And that was a tremendous um, sign. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw that, black, white, it was well recorded, so we know that it happened. And Matt said that that's what he used as the final signal to tell the slaves God was on their side. Hmm. So he assembled his first army of, of, three, of six people to start it with him, with six slaves named Henry, Jack, Will, Sam, uh, Nelson, and Hawk. Okay. And together, on the next leadership, with only weapons like knives and axes and pitchforks, they started off on August the 21st at night, on foot, in the dark, in August, extremely hot in Virginia at that time, to try to free themselves and everybody else out of slavery. To me, that was one of the greatest undertakings I think anyone could have ever done because it required a tremendous amount of faith. Mm-hmm. I've lived out in those woods, and it can be extremely black dark out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Been a little bit of a mathematician myself and astronomer. I did some calculations back, and on that particular night on August 21 in 1831, the moon was in its fourth quarter, what they call the, the, the first quarter. Mm-hmm. So it was only just a sliver of the moon. So it was not very well lit. So they had to find their way through the woods. Pitch black. Pitch black, mm-hmm. and they covered 20 miles doing it. 20 miles. Mm-hmm. So not just to walk 20 miles. But to walk 20 miles and then... And then you attack home. Yes. His plan was to kill the, the owners of, of slaves in their homes. And the first home that he attacked was his own home that he lived in, mm-hmm. in which there were the five white people in that home. Mm-hmm. Joseph Travis, Sally Moore, or Savage Sally Travis, Putman Moore, um, a little boy named William who was an apprentice, and Joseph Jr. Though Sally and, Joseph, and uh, Joseph's baby was a year old. They killed all five of the white people there, and then that technically became a free man. Because his masters were dead. Because his masters were dead. Hmm. And they went from farm to farm throughout the night and the next day and attacking the farms in the areas that had slaves 
He didn't attack homes that did not own slaves. Mm-hmm. Quakers particular, there were a lot of Quaker families living in the area, and he bypassed each one of their homes. So this was not, it was not about just being this evil person doing this terrible deed of, you know, murdering all the white people around. It really was him saying, no, I'm going to do something myself and with my people to mm-hmm. free my people. Right, and he only targeted those who were enslaving people. Wow. And, um, and, but he had also had told his followers that neither age nor sex nor social status Matters. was to be spared. Mm-hmm. And Richard Whitehead, Reverend Richard Whitehead, and his family of five were all killed. Mm-hmm. You know, I told you that the, the week before, he and Ned had both preached mm-hmm. at Turner's church, he inside, Ned outside. Mm-hmm. The next week, he and quite a few of the members of the church came on the, how would you say, meeting each other but different circumstances. The roles had changed. And total, 55 whites was killed in the first initial area of the attack. And then the next day, after they had covered almost 20 miles, they came into conflict with um, armed militias of whites who they fought a battle. They eventually won the battle, but they lost a lot of, he lost a lot of his men. Mm-hmm. They tried to move to another area because they wanted to attack the town of Jerusalem where he could fortify the town, raise an army, mm-hmm. and then they would force the government to set all slaves free. Um, Unfortunately, the militias that were much better armed than they were uh, eventually broke up his band, and then Nett was forced to go out and hide out for 74 days. One of the things that was probably uh, very disturbing to Nett, a lot of the blacks fought alongside the whites against him. Let's talk about that. Okay. You are a person of color, Mm -hmm. and you are trying to do something for all black people. And a portion of the people who you're working for are working against you. Tell me about that. I thought that to me, when I first learned about that, I felt betrayed. I thought, you know, I felt, I felt Net would have been enormously betrayed hmm. because he was, like you say, he was putting his life on the line. And the people who had joined him, they were putting their life on the line. But at the same time, I could understand mm-hmm. why people did it because this was all they knew. That's right. That's right. Um, and they, too, might have been following Bible. that Bible that said, do not honor kill. your masters and do not kill. Right. Uh-huh. And I look at it and I think about living is an intoxicant. Hmm. When the, the worst condition of living is better than the most opulent surroundings of being dead. Mm-hmm. That's King Tut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. He was buried with all his riches, but he was still dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if he had had an opportunity to live another 30 years to give up all those riches, he would have taken the, 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 mm-hmm. he would have taken the 30 years. Mm-hmm. Anyone would. So I could not fault the slaves who fought against Nat because to them, that was their way to live. It was survival. It was survival. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we look back at it, put ourselves in that same situation, and put yourself in that same situation. Mm-hmm. You have children. You, if you know that if you go out and join these people, the punishment is going to be something horrific. terrible. Mm-hmm. And you want to protect the life of your children, if not your life, but the life of your children. Right. So you had to make a choice right then and there. And I'd say, I, I always tell people, when I would give sports to anybody, ask yourself, would you have been the one to have joined him, knowing that what you were facing? Mm-hmm. And I don't think many people had the nerve to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't fault the, the slaves who fought against him. I just feel sorry for them. Hmm. How do you reconcile that murder 
by any means murder mm-hmm. is not good. To murder another person is not good. How do you reconcile that with the work that he was doing and the reason he was doing it for was ultimate good? Mm-hmm. Where do you see that? Well, murder is that little fine line between killing. Um, when you kill a chicken to eat it, is that murdering the chicken or are you killing it because you need sustenance? In war, soldiers are taught to kill. I was in the military, mm-hmm. and that embeds into your mind. You have to kill the enemy before the enemy kills you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, when you're looking at it to where the, the slave owners were the enemy, and they killed slaves all the time. Like I say, a white master could kill a slave at any time if he wanted to. For no to, reason at all. For no reason at all. Mm-hmm. Or any white person could just take a person out, and then they did. They just they couldn't do it. They could do it. They did it all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to overthrow a system of that, you have to overthrow it completely. You've got to be thorough. Mm-hmm. And the people that were killed, whether they were man, woman, or a child, because children could own slaves. Mm-hmm. Women could own slaves. They all benefited from it. Mm-hmm. So just not just killing the, the adult white males. You're not murdering. When in a battle, you're eliminating the enemy because it is either you kill them or they, or they will you. kill you. So it's a matter of survival. So Net didn't murder people as much as to say, I don't look at it, I don't call it with murder. Mm-hmm. It was a justifiable homicide. Hmm. Justifiable <laughs> homicide. Okay. I think some people will, you know, yeah, not so agree with that. that. Yeah, that's that morality involved. Yeah, but there. that's an interesting way to look at it, a justifiable homicide based on the reasons he was doing it. Yes. Now, tell me how you feel he felt on that first night. So I want to go back to before okay. all of it ended and he's in the in the woods on that first night. Well, on the first night when they started, they assembled at a place called Cabin Point. Okay. And at first, most of the, a lot of the slaves did not want to kill all the whites or kill the white masters. They said, maybe we would just kill the, white, the males mm-hmm. or maybe we'll just tie them up. But Nat was insisting upon that they had to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And he was, the, he was selected to be the person to make the first blow. So when they went to the home of his master, Nat went into his master's chamber while he was in bed sleep. This was at night. Okay. He hit him over the head with an axe. Hmm. It didn't quite kill him. And then one of Nett's lieutenants named Will finished him off. And then Nett's, um, Joseph Travis's wife, Sally, sat up and said, what's happening? And Will chopped her head off with his axe. Mm-hmm. And I won't get into any so they, But these were gruesome murders. They, they were, were they killing. Were, they were killing. Because yeah. they didn't have any guns. They only had knives, axes and maybe a pitchfork or two, just regular common farm instruments so they could get their hands on. Mm-hmm. And then they used those. They could work from home. And it's at Joseph Travis's house, they did get a gun or two and some powder, and they went to the next, which the next house they hit was Salathia Francis. They killed him, and he only had one slave, but they freed him. And at Joseph Travis, at the, the Travis farm, there were also a total of 17 slaves, of which nine of them were, were male. Two of them were young boys, so they, were, they didn't join. So he picked up, as he would go from farm to farm, he would pick up people. Mm-hmm. And they would kill the, uh, everybody who was there if they were slave owners. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they killed them with whatever weapons they could get their hands on. Mm-hmm. So that night after the first, kill, uh, the, the first killings had happened, he's back in the field because they have to hide. No, they kept moving. Oh, they kept moving. Okay. But they had to sleep. 
At no, some they point. Didn't. Oh, they just kept going. They kept going. Okay. They started off that midnight, I said that night on the 21st, and they stayed on the move all the way to the 24th. Wow. Which they didn't stop to sleep or eat. Well, some of them did stop to eat, but they went and unfortunately some of his um, captain, some of his recruits decided to hit the liquor stills or the liquor stashes of their masters because they had helped the masters make the liquor. Mm-hmm. Almost every home had a liquor steel back then. Mm-hmm. Um, the whites enjoyed their spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was well known for their brandy in that area, their peach brandy in particular. So the slaves got into some of that, and unfortunately, uh, some of, he lost some of his fighters because of that. But by the same token, some of his fighters got a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, because it can do either one to you, kill you or give you lots of courage. Okay. Right. So they are going for four days straight, yes. four days straight. So this is happening every few hours or however often it took for them to they, get to the, the distances between some of the houses was only about a half a mile, but some of the houses that they went to covered as much as three miles before they would go. Okay. And they had to do a, go about it very stealthily. Mm-hmm. And it was when the sun came up, they had already killed about 22 people, but they still had to move and they would come in very fast. They, by that time, they had managed to get some horses and mules, and so uh, some of them were mounted, mm-hmm. and um, they would prevent the, the, the whites from escaping, and then they would convince the slaves to join them. But also at the same time, too, they ran into some slaves who did fight against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them even put up roadblocks to try to stop them. But the unfortunate thing was that he couldn't get to the town of Jerusalem because of a river that stood between him and the town. And the whites were able to fortify the two bridges at which he could cross. Okay. And he couldn't get across, and then from that they were able to rally and get more troops in, and eventually with just the power of their weapons, he was defeated. So tell me what you think he felt when he was finally captured. I think that Nat Turner made himself be captured. He was able to hide for 74 days, almost right in front of the whites. He went right back to where his home was, even though the masters and all those had been killed, Mm -hmm. and he stayed within the area. His wife, Cherry, was living in a place that was only about a half mile. She was living with Gil's Reese. They didn't attack Gil's Reese's house, and when the whites began to retaliate for the um, insurrection, Gil's Reese protected Cherry and the children. That's how Charlotte survived from the vengeance from being executed by white bombs. Um, I think Nat wanted to, during that time, of, he was out running around for you know, being captured, avoiding being captured. He realized that he wanted to let the, the population know why he did the insurrection. Mm. And he did try to recruit more people. And when he was finally captured, he was actually betrayed by two white guys. Two black guys, I'm sorry, by two, two slaves that had gone out hunting. Mm-hmm. And they came across his hiding place. And they went back and told their masters where he was. And then the militias surrounded the area. And they kept, he kept trying to avoid them. And then he decided to give himself up to a man named Benjamin Phelps. On, on October the 30th. That was, I'd say, 74 days after the insurrection had started. Mm-hmm. And then they took him from there. It's amazing that they didn't execute him right there in the woods. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. from where he was captured, it was about 11 miles to where they took him to, to the town of Jerusalem, where the court was. And the governor of Virginia had demanded that there be trials for the slaves. So there, was seven, there was a total of 29 trials of all the slaves that had been captured. Seventeen was executed, including one woman who was executed. Mm-hmm. Her name was Venus, and uh, Nett was the last of the ones to be executed. Uh, out of the, tw- the others, most of them were manumitted. They were sold south 
mm-hmm. out of the state. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them were actually returned back to their masters because their masters came in and said they had been a good slave and they would make sure that they would stay out of trouble if they gave them back to them. Because don't forget the slaves were property. They had value. Wow. Wow. So based on how slaves were treated back then, period, mm-hmm. they probably didn't give him a horse to walk those 11 miles. No. He rode, they actually rode him on the back of a wagon, according okay. to the, uh, some of the history from that time period. And crowds of whites were gathered along the, the little narrow roads and lanes, and they were demanding that he be hanged right then and there. Mm-hmm. They threw rocks and bricks at him. And uh, by the time they got him to the jail, he was not in the best of shape. But they did put him in the jail, and then Thomas Gray, a local lawyer, came in and asked Nett would he like to confess or would he like to write, tell why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. So in three days, in a three-day period, Nett gave almost continuously a confession, to mm-hmm. which Thomas Gray wrote down, as he said, word for word. That is what we really know about Nett Turner mostly, because in that he described his life, himself, why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. It also gave the whites a timeline how the people were killed. Mm-hmm. And they used that confession in his trial to where that um, it was read in the court. A couple of people testified against him, including one black person. Mm-hmm. And um, the court made up a 10 what they called magistrates, because he was, you have to take of this, slaves were property. They were not citizens. So they couldn't be tried as a In a regular being. court, mm-hmm. right. He was tried in what was called small claims court, mm-hmm. court of awe. Mm-hmm. And as a piece of property, it was determined whether or not he should be terminated, which would be the loss of that property. <laughs> wow. So in, the, in his last moments, do you think that he felt a sense of righteous indignation, or do you think that he felt fear for what was getting ready to happen? Do you think he felt satisfied with what he was able to accomplish in those 74 days? I go back from his confession okay. and what it said in some of the records to the jailer. Okay. The jailer, who I actually had an opportunity to meet a descendant of the jailer, mm. and they had some records in their family, and the jailer had wrote down that Nat's demeanor was that of a man who was ready to meet his Savior, and that he said to the crowd of people that he had no regrets for the insurrection, for he had done the work that God had directed him to do. Hmm. Now, one of the things you can take into account for this, as they went from farm to farm, they only killed people. They did not burn down any buildings. They didn't burn any crops or kill animals. The people who were killed, men and women, were not violated upon. You know, the, the fear that they would turn into mass raping and all that. Mm-hmm. None of that happened. They only killed the people who were the owners to free their slaves. Mm-hmm. So he was not looking. And they didn't steal items from the homes. That They only just killed the people and then moved on and took their slaves with them. Some would say, well, okay, taking the slaves with them was a form of stealing. But they didn't, they didn't have a, a, a wagon load of booty mm-hmm. falling, mm-hmm. so to say. Mm-hmm. They were not like pirates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was strictly given by God was to kill people. And he didn't try to get his own personal freedom. Because, like I say, for, 20, for 74 days, they were looking for him and they couldn't find him. He was the most wanted man in maybe all America at that time. Well, I would almost think that he knew that he would not get his own freedom, that he knew that at some point he would be captured, mm-hmm. he would be hung. And so he absolutely was doing it for the freedom of the other people. Yes. And that's what he said in his, in his confession, that it was not for him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
One of the things that the whites tried to do was to discredit his intelligence. The word had passed around many times before that Neff was very intelligent. He knew how to make paper. He could make gunpowder. He knew how to calculate the, uh, the tides and the stars. He could move it. That's why they were able to move about. He knew how to read the stars so that he could tell where they were going. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a team of white men who came from the, from the University of, of William and Mary at that time, which was in Williamsburg. It was about 40 miles away. They came to the jail, and they supposedly examined Ned and questioned him. They wanted to prove that he was not intelligent, but they went away scratching their heads because he was able to answer all of their questions. Right, right. So when he was executed, his head was taken off from his body and given over to those very same doctors who had come from William & Mary to take it back to study. So speaking of questions, we want to give a chance for our audience to ask you some questions. (laughs) And I know that you are overly prepared for that. But there are some folks, and and I want to give the caveat that some people may not agree that it was done from the perspective of wanting to save other people, was done, you know, by God giving him the order to do that. There may be some folks in this audience that doesn't, you know, they they, they don't, that doesn't work for them. People still today still say that he was wrong. Okay. There's some who said that he should have just restricted the killing to white males only. Okay. And children and women should not have been killed. Okay. So I could expect that, yes. Okay. So let's get, <laughs> let's get ready. Do we have any questions in our audience? Anyone interested in knowing something about Mr. Turner here or his great-great-great-grandfather? Anyone? Okay. How important is it for your kids to carry the lesson? Okay. Uh, the question was, how is it important for my kids, my, mm-hmm. my descendants to carry the lesson? Okay, I have three children two boys and a girl, and I have six grandchildren, five girls and a boy. I made sure that they know, and I tried to give them all the information. That was one of my reasons for why I did so much research. Um, when I was about 40, my early 40s, one of my great aunts, she was the last of my grandfather's sisters and brothers who was alive, said that she wanted to know exactly how the family was related to Nat Turner. It was always stories but we didn't have any real documentation. And so she said, well, I'm, she, I know you're one of those boys that go to college and all that. Can you use your, your back then they used to call it intelligence, not intelligence. Intelligence, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> And she would like to know. She was 89 at that time. And so I took it upon myself. I started looking through records. At first, I didn't know how to do it. And then I thought about, well, why not look at the U.S. Census reports? So I started looking at census data reports, and they go back to the 1870s. Every 10 years, there's a census taken. So in 1860, slaves were not on the census in Virginia, mostly as free people. They were on there strictly under the names of their masters. If they, The masters would either say he's got so many females, so many males. Mm-hmm. But since I knew the names of some of the masters, I was able to put them in place in the 1860s. 1870 was the first census taken after slaves had been freed in 1865. And then in 1870, 1880, 1890, that's when I saw my grandma, 1870, I see my grandma, great-grandma Fanny on there, who is Nat's granddaughter, along with Charlotte, who is Nat's daughter. And they were living in the place which was right next to the John Clark Plantation, which was one of Benjamin Turner's son. And in 1880, they're in the same location. And then by that time, Fanny had gotten old enough to where she was starting to have children, so some of the children are listed. And then the 1890 census was destroyed in a fire, but the the 1900-1910 census 
So that's how I first started to put the line together. And then I started going to the county courthouse looking at the records. I uh, found out that everything that had happened on the courts, all the, ca- the court cases were recorded, and those books are still there. Then I decided, okay, well, I knew who Benjamin Turner and Samuel Turner, I looked to see that they have wills. Mm-hmm. And I found in the will books, there are wills. Uh, I looked, started looking through the books of transfers of property. Anytime someone bought and sold a slave, they had to pay taxes on it. Mm-hmm. So if you follow the money, you could find out who was being sold on such a day and who how much they were paid for, or when someone died and their family wanted to appraise the estate, there would be an appraisal made and all of their property would be valued. So that was the sources that I was able to put together. And so I was able to put it together, and I presented it to my Aunt Corinne, and she was so pleased. She brought, you know, brought tears to her eyes because she always wanted to know if those stories that she was told mm-hmm. and that she had told her children, she had eight children, and all the years in which that we knew about it, the, the farm that she grew up on is the farm where Nat Turner was actually captured on. And um, so I felt that I had done a great service to someone, and I passed that around to other people in the family, and everybody wanted to know more. They kept saying, well, do one for me, do one for me. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so my profession is computer science, computer science. I've worked in the computer industry field for a long time, for 40 years. So I did some of this in relation to some of my work, I had, did some, I had done some um, um, programming for the Department of Education and also for the Department of Defense. So I had access to the congressional records as well as I got state com- um, access to the state records. And I started going through and researching all that and putting it together. So I passed out information. I got a large volume of information now. And then I started connecting up with other people. I found out that there were other scholars, a lot of scholars out there, who was actually writing about Nat Turner. Uh, William Drury had wrote a book about the insurrection in 1899. I had never known that until I started researching. Uh, Henry Trago had a, great, a very good book on Nat Turner. Uh, Scott French at the University of Virginia had a chance to meet with him. He was a historian. Kent, Kenneth Greenberg, I got to start getting the idea maybe I could put this information together and present it. Mm-hmm. And some of the schools in the area, when they found out about it, they asked me to start coming to make presentations like I did yesterday at a high school or at some of the colleges and universities. And so it was like a, an accidental step into it, but I made sure that I tried to make sure that the information was all correct. And are your kids carrying that down now? We so talked a bit about that yesterday. To a certain degree. I mean, they're not taking it on as, like, as much as I would like for them. Well, you're but, still active. But I'm still active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm still here. Um, they have never lived on the farm. We still own our farm that we've had since the 1880s. Um, they go back that, that far. And the farm is only about five miles from where Nat Turner originally lived. So that's how I knew about it growing up in it. And so I'm faced with the dilemma that where I have this property that I, you know, my grandkids are not interested in it, but I want them to continue to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Um, the churches down there the where the families all live, and I take them out to the cemetery so they can see who their grandparents were, their great-grandparents and great-great grandparents, and always impress it upon them that they're, I'm the third great-grandson of Nat Turner, mm-hmm. but my grandchildren are the fifth great-grandperson mm-hmm. per- of, of Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. Now, having only one grandchild that's a Turner, and that's happened to be a girl, from my side of the line of Turners, and may the line may end with the name Turner, but it'll still go on, there's lots of other Turners in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my great-grandmother Fanny had 10 children. And most of those children had 10 children, uh, 6, 10, 12 children each. Which was common. Which was common at that time. And was done to support the families and in their field the work. Absolutely. Right. Oh, yeah. And um, so you know, there are a lot of other turners out there and the people. So I pass the information readily around to them. Mm -hmm. Now, just not looking at it only to my, my children. I give it freely to anyone in the family who wants it. Absolutely. Do we have any other questions? We have one in the back. And one on this side. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I work in a public school, and I'm on a mission this year to help our young black kids understand the power of history, of their history. And a lot of young people kind of, I grew up with a grandmother and a great-grandmother and a mother who told me black history, right? And I was very interested in it. But I tend to find that in 2022, they don't realize that Emmett Till died just 67 years ago. And one twofold question, what call to action do you have about the power of history for today's black youth? And how did your knowing your own family history, how did it shape your personal identity? Because some people don't have the luxury of knowing the stories that you know about your third great grandfather. And I think it's amazing. Um, I was the nerdy kid who wanted to know. My cousins, not so much. But I realize that there's power in that, and I see the need for that in today's black kids so that they know how to carry the history into their future. Okay. Well, the answer to the first part of your question, as I told you before, growing up on the farm is always looking, trying to get out of work. And so for me, learning was the best way to keep from having to go and work in the hot sun. And I often look back at it and say, well, maybe I had that innate ability because Nat taught himself how to read. And I look at it and I think that his opportunities that he had when he was growing up, the fact that he was able to become a preacher, that he could do things that was not always just working in the fields day in and day out, that he could also expand his world to know beyond just the, the boundaries of his plantation. Because most slaves had to stay on their plantation or wherever the, the owners tell them. If they say, you, can, you have to live here in this barn, you can only come out in the morning and you work and then you go in there in the evening, you better not come out. That was their world. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have any other activity. They didn't have any other way to learn anything other than that. So I look at it, I had the opportunity to expand my mind from an early age, and I just, I've had an insatiable appetite to always want to know. I love to read still, even now, in my old age. And um, I don't ever consider that I would know enough to where I say, this is it. I'm always looking to get the next book. I'm always reading the newspapers every day. Uh, I learned some things just coming here to Spokane. I never knew about the Spokane Indian tribe. Mm -hmm. So I can take that back with me that I came here and I've learned, I've added something to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I intend to do some more research because in my family heritage also is Native American. Uh, in answer to this, the second part of your question, uh, I feel that it's important for children to know about themselves first before they know about someone else. Uh, it's great to learn about the other part of the world, what the other world is like, but you need to know as much as you can about who you are. I've traveled around the world a lot, and uh, the only continent I've never been on is Antarctica, so I feel that I have a unique perspective in taking what I have learned about myself and how when I meet other people, 
when we, we're talking and they talk about their family and about their history, I can talk about my family mm-hmm. and about my history. I've had dinner with people who are living in the same household that their relatives lived in back in the 1400s or attend the same church that goes all the way back to the 1200s. So I can carry on a conversation with them and feel comfortable because I do know something about where I come from. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tony. I'm a local social worker in in town. Um, I'm enthused and and happy that your family has remained in in Virginia, you know, throughout uh, your life. My question is, what has the state of Virginia done to recognize your great 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 grandfather and their you know in their history and their monuments and their you know dedications? Uh, it's been slow. At first, it was never hardly ever mentioned at all in the history books. When I was taking history, Virginia history, in my early years, it was just one little paragraph. And when I was in high school, I taught in that Virginia history class, to where the teacher asked me, "Was Ned Turner and I related?" That was only a small paragraph in the books. Today, uh, it's a very large part of the curricula. Uh, Virginia has this, this thing called standards of learning, which the students have to show equivalency in, to, in order to pass the certain grades. And the Nat Turner, as well as the part of slavery, is one of the required readings and the required knowledge on those. Um, a lot of the colleges now um, include Nat Turner celebrations in their uh, particularly their Black History Month. Like I said, I've been asked to speak at all different kinds of schools. One time I was even asked to go to a school to which, uh, during integration, in order to, Virginia was one of the schools, one of the states that participated in what was called massive resistance. After the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, a lot of Virginia counties closed their schools rather than integrate. And for the white kids to have school, they set up academies. The black kids have to either go to another state or do without. Well, one day I was asked to participate in a black history celebration at what's called Southampton County Academy, which was the white school, that you know, one that they set up specifically for the white kids to avoid integrating. And I, when the principal asked me about it, and I said, well, do you know the history of this school? <laughs> he says, yes, but parents are now more progressive. And they wanted to know. And I went and I gave the presentation. I gave a nice, I gave a full speech. And uh, the kids received it very well. They asked very important questions. I participated in the school yesterday at Rogers, John B. Rogers School out here. And um, the students were very engaging. And children want to learn. And as I said, that when I was in that class back in 1963, the white kids, I believe, you know, were willing to learn. They were, they were, kind of surprised that Nat Turner was a real person. When you read something about someone like that, you say, no, that could not have possibly happened. But it was. It did happen. And so Virginia today, there's a lot of um, information about Nat Turner. There's a lot of discussions going on. There's still a lot of uh, also, too, backlash. Um, There are people who like to say slavery didn't exist or that it wasn't all that bad. And there are those who felt that Nat Turner was a bloodthirsty, venomous murderer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although they probably used the N-word. Well, they don't they use they that describe, so No, anymore. then, yeah. to describe him. Right. So before we go, there's something very special that we have to hear. And we'll get, get you. 
You wrote a poem. Yes. You're a bit of a poet. I try. I doubt. And you wrote a poem about Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. Can you read a portion of that for us? Yes, I would. The poem I wrote it specifically that if Nat had had an opportunity to speak to people before he was executed, what would he have said? And so I tried to channel Nat, and when I came up, I settled down. It was called A Chapter in the Oasis. And the poem goes, perhaps I may not have much to offer. I have fewer flowery words to utter. My heart aches to be in such a muddle. Guns are pointed at me in bundle. But I'll bear the pain for you because I have honesty to give. What would be happier in this life than to be true to each other? Perhaps I have no aggression to sound. Tis hard to escape from this labyrinth. My body is battered in the thorn untold. The spears are piercing hard at the foe. But I wear the scars for you because I have conformity beyond. What would be happier in this life than, to be tr- than for all to be my brother? Perhaps I may be a guest in this oasis. I have not a shelter to hide. My thoughts of hate are lost in the maze. All eyes stare hard as I pause to give grace. But I'll carry the anguish for you, because I have sincerity unending. What I'll be happier in this life than for us to love one another. Perhaps I may not sound your praise. I have no voice left to raise. My mind is shattered by the way. The mob has laid its arms for the day. But I'll preach ever high your esteem, because my mortal self has gone to rest. What would be happier in this life than for each to live at your very best? So that's what I feel the Nat Turner would have wanted the world to know about him. And he given an opportunity to speak it. And I'm so pleased that I was able to share that poem with you. And I hope it in some way it inspires you to want to know more about him. Well, I'm excited that you, that you were able to join us today. Join us in this beautiful institution, Gonzaga University, and to be a part of the Northwest African American Museum Descendant Series. So thank you so much, Mr. Turner, for being here. Now we want to give another question. We have one more question. We want to get that one in. Okay. Yes. So uh, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, you all already know me, but I'm Dr. Callie Slayer. I'm the Director of Education and Engagement with the Northwest African American Museum. And we uh, also wanted to say thank you to our viewers online. We have quite a few uh, viewer questions coming in online, so I wanted to ask uh, a few of those questions uh, for our viewers online. So um, the first one is from Myresha S., and her question is, Nat Turner was a piece of property according to the legal system of the period. Do you have any theories as to why the legal system would provide a trial for someone who was legally property? Mm-hmm. Yes, as I said. It was a pretty foregone conclusion, and that was to be executed. But the governor of Virginia at that time, William Floyd, named the governor, wanted to have a to show to the world that slavery was legal, and that the legal system of the United States of America at that time and the laws of Virginia supported that the weight of law. So by having a trial, even though it was a show trial, that they proved to the world that slavery was not an aberration, that it was legal. And that the, what was the, that the whites had the legal right to their property, and they had the legal right to do with their property as whatever they chose to do. Thank you. Do we have any more online questions? Yes, we do. Thank you all so much, and thank you, Mr. Turner. We've actually been able to extend it with so many questions, and we really appreciate your time and you being here. Uh, this question is from Patricia, and... Um, we have a question also from Charlotte 
how did the family reconcile the mutilation of his body after the hanging? Well, in, at 1831, the family had absolutely nothing to do about it. I mean, Nat Turner was hanged. There was supposed to be some slaves that were there at the hanging. Um, according to the records of that time, a thunderstorm came up right after he was hanged. His body was given over to the medical examiner who removed the head and kept the remains of his body, and then it was put into what was known as a, a pulpous grave. Through the years, a lot of people said that Nat was boiled down and that his you know, there's been candle lights where candles were made from the fat. And some people said that there was money pouches made from his skin, that his bones were broken up and made into powder to be used as juju juice or whatever. But as far as from what is known from the history of it, that is accurate history, none of that actually happened. A few people in the county used to claim that they had uh, pouches that were made from his skin, but when it was, an analysis was actually done on those, it turned out to be deer skin. Uh, there's a skull that has now been examined by the Smithsonian Institute that was reputed to be the, the skull of Nat Turner, that after the, the doctors at William & Mary got through examining it, it was given over to someone who took it to Chicago, and it survived the Chicago fire, and then now, but we're still determining if that was the skull of Nat Turner. And with DNA, we can tell now. Well, some of the DNA can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our next question. You said it was one from Patricia? Yes. And uh, so, yeah, we had a lot of comments and um, people just, you know, thanking you for sharing your your story and, and telling us about your, uh, your heroic ancestor. Uh, I was just going to share a few of those comments with you from our viewers and then okay. uh, take it, give it back to Kianta. Uh, so Patricia said, thank you so much. I am older than Bruce Turner, and I didn't learn any of this in elementary and high schools in the HBCU I attended, and she's from New Orleans. And another one from Charlene just saying, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. This has been such a wonderful evening, and that she appreciates your time, Mr. Turner. Thank, oh, thank you. you. I appreciate them listening. I would go so far as to say the people in the room also appreciate your time <laughs> and appreciate you being here and sharing as much so information as you have. The gentleman back there keep raising the Oh, yes, sir. Yes. When I was in high school, I'm guessing you would have been in college, but the book came out, it became quite controversial. William Styron's book, was he way off in his version? Yes, he was. <laughs> William Styron wrote a book that called The Confessions of Nat Turner, which is the same title that Thomas Gray's confession was. Uh, in William Styron's book, he depicted Nat as a 21-year-old, in my opinion, sex fiend that his only reason for why he had the insurrection was he had the hots for this white girl named Margaret Whitehead, whom Nat did kill. He was, that was one of the few people that he was, that's one of the people he was actually charged with murdering. And that was the basis of Styron's book. I always tell people it's good literature, but it's trash as far as when it comes to accuracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you go online right now and you pull up the confessions of Nat Turner, you're going to pull up William Styron's book. I had an opportunity to meet William Styron, and he and I debated that quite a bit, but he wrote the book as a form of fiction. But I told him, how would, he, how would people who are the descendants of Abraham Lincoln feel about if he wrote that Abraham Lincoln was a pirate who went around raping women up and down the southern seaboard rather than the president of the United States? Mm -hmm. And what was his answer? Well, he said probably they wouldn't like it, but if it's fiction, it's he has a, as an artist, he has a right to write it. Mm -hmm. Very good. We have one more question as well. Okay. 
Mr. Turner, thank you so much for being here and sharing this powerful history with us. I wonder about how you define the death of Nat Turner. Did he give up his life for freedom? Did he lose his life for freedom? Was he lynched? What terminology do you use in describing um, how his life ended? I'd like to say that Nat Turner was a casualty in the fight for freedom. He was neither, like I say, he didn't give up his life. He hoping that, I'm sure he had every anticipation that he would live, and that in order to get the people to follow him was that they could be free. Um, in terms of the state, the city, you know, he's been executed, you could say that, well, he was not murdered or not lynched because they did go through the process of having a trial, and that when you have a trial and a person is executed, that is the, the penalty, you're not killing the person, per se, or murdering the person, you're giving them punishment. But in terms of, say, the war for freedom, there are survivors and there are casualties. If you look at, to say, that the Nat Turner insurrection could have been the first shots fired to the American Civil War, then that would have made him a casualty of the Civil War, even though it happened 35 years later. So I hope that answers to your question that he just didn't give up his life. No, he was a casualty of war. I've learned so much from you. I've learned so much from you. And what I hope that people realize in speaking with you and listening to your words is that no matter what they think about Nat Turner, no matter if they think what he did was good or bad, none of that matters. What matters is that he was a man. Mm -hmm. He had faith. He did what he felt was right. Mm -hmm. And he also did it so that you and I would benefit from that and that we could be here together to even just talk about it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Now we'd like to turn it back over to the president of the Northwest African American Museum, Lanisha DeBartolaven. Okay. And I thank all of you all. This is a conversation that we do not want to end. We are learning so much. This has been such an insightful conversation. We thank you, Mr. Turner, for expanding our awareness of our American history. We thank you for the depth of research that you have done with love for your ancestry. And we thank you for sharing it with all of us and inspiring us with this history and with this example that you have set. We all have a family history. We all have ancestors. And so we all have some discoveries to make about ourselves as well. So we thank you so much. This has been a deep historical lesson tonight that you have shared with us. And this glimpse into Nat Turner's life that we've not read in the history books, that we've not seen on the big screen. Wow. But you have come here to the state of Washington to teach us, to inspire us, and to bring us together so that we can become better as we know more about our American history. Thank you, Mr. Turner. And Ms. Duncan, thank you for being the extraordinary moderator and civic leader that you are. 
you bring conversations to life and you bring us all into those living conversations. We are so grateful to be here in Spokane, Washington, as we remember the life of our dearly beloved, departed friend, civil rights leader, community activist, institution builder, Sandy Williams who was executive director of the Carl Maxey Center here when she suddenly lost her life three months ago. We intentionally chose to bring this conversation to Spokane, Washington, in tribute and in honor of Sandy Williams. So let us take a moment of silence to pay tribute and respect to one who gave so much to this community, to this people, that she loved, a moment of silence. Thank you. May she rest in power and in peace. The upcoming editions of NAM's Descendant series will feature the descendant of Sojourner Truth and other legendary leaders. So be sure to tune in to NAM to visit our website, to follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can be aware of the next Descendant Series conversation and everything that this museum is doing in service to community. We thank the Spokane Branch NAACP for their partnership tonight. Thank you, Gonzaga University and Spokane Public Schools, where Mr. Turner visited yesterday, engaging with an auditorium full of high school students learning stories they did not learn in their history books. Thank you, Mr. Turner, for visiting with our young people. To all here today and to all tuned in, we thank you. We hope you consider joining the Northwest African American Museum as a member by going to our website at naamnw.org. We advance justice and equity, cultivate educational empowerment, and center and celebrate black history, art, and culture 365 days a year. We're so grateful to our staff and to our partners for the hard work they put into this program. We close by encouraging you to continue to use this powerful history of Nat Turner's life to stay on this path of full freedom for all. And now, a closing musical rendition from NAM's African American Cultural Ensemble.
Welcome back. Again, that was a discussion on the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Nathaniel Turner and through uh, the research and oral history of his third uh, great-grandson. Right now, we want to go into another uh, resistance chapter in African history in the United States, and that is the Black uh, Seminole Alliance uh, during the early and mid-19th century in the southeastern part of the country that is now known as the United States. Let's listen to this report on the Black Seminoles and one of their chiefs, uh, John Horse. It's hard to imagine that Hollywood hasn't jumped all over this. You would think it would be box office gold because it's part Spartacus and part Braveheart and part Amistad and part Glory with a little bit of Dances with Wolves thrown in. A story decades long of oppression and freedom fighting. I don't understand why there hasn't been more attention to John Horse and the Black Seminoles, but hopefully we can correct this. John Horse and the Black Seminoles deserve to be remembered for a number of reasons. They created the largest haven in the U.S. South for runaway slaves. They led the largest slave revolt in U.S. history. They secured the only emancipation of rebellious slaves prior to the U.S. Civil War, and they formed the largest mass exodus of slaves across the United States, moving from the Florida Everglades through Indian Territory, what would become Oklahoma, eventually locating in Mexico, where they secured title to their own land. It's a remarkable story. It's overlooked not just by filmmakers, uh, it's not well known in popular culture, and in fact, it's been overlooked by historians of slavery, if you can believe it. In the early 18th century, uh, two groups in particular uh, fled the colonial south into Spanish Florida, into the Everglades. One of these groups were Seminoles who were migrating from the various colonies, uh, just trying to avoid white encroachment, basically, trying to move someplace that white colonists weren't. And the other group was runaway slaves. Uh, people who were fleeing and trying to create a free life for themselves. Both were welcome in Florida. And in fact, the Spanish crown offered runaway slaves their freedom if they would defend the land for the crown, for, for the Spanish. So a mixed society emerged in the Everglades uh, of intermarriage, family intermingling between these runaway slaves and the Seminoles. And in fact, the first legally sanctioned black free town in the North American continent was in the Spanish uh, Florida Everglades. After the American Revolution, people living in the southern states didn't really like living that close to a large armed population of former slaves, particularly when they were in league with the local Native American nation, the large armed group of free Seminoles, and they knew that their own slaves felt free to run away and be harbored by this group. They knew that they were welcomed. And so from George Washington's administration on, there was questions of what do we do about the problem of the Florida Everglades. In 1818, uh, this was James Monroe's administration, uh, General Andrew Jackson actually 
moved into Florida, invaded it, not authorized to do so. He was actually pursuing justice against those who'd attacked Fort Scott in Georgia, but he did it anyway. He went into Florida and uh, claimed it for the United States. When he seized the peninsula, he took the opportunity to um, execute some of the people who opposed him and also to clean out some of the areas of uh, former slaves and Seminoles uh, because he felt that this would make it better for annexation. The United States then uh, soon actually bought Florida from the Spanish. When Jackson became president, he decided to make sure that the black Seminole communities were moved out by force. So he pursued this in his policy, his larger policy of Indian removal. This led to the Second Seminole War, which was 1835 to 1842, and became the largest and costliest of the so-called Indian Wars. Because the two communities were tied together, that is, the former slaves and the Seminoles, when the Seminoles were attacked in the Seminole War, this led to an uprising of the former slaves. In uh, April of 1836, black Seminoles and their Indian allies moved together to create what was the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. This wasn't just a matter of runaway slaves. Uh, more than 385 plantation slaves ran away from their masters and joined the black Seminoles, essentially in laying waste to the Florida sugar mills, which were some of the um, most valuable uh, areas, plantations, in the whole continent. One Seminole leader at the time was the leader Osceola, who is justly remembered by history. Another leader who rose up at this time was John Horse, who was ethnically a black Seminole, and who would ultimately lead his people on a long and trying exodus for their freedom. In 1838, John Horse and the Black Seminoles agreed to stop fighting the U.S. government in exchange for moving to what was then considered to be Indian Territory, which is now today the state of Oklahoma, and for legal recognition of their freedom. So despite the fact many of them were runaway slaves, they would have the opportunity to start over again as free individuals. Once they moved from the Everglades to Indian Territory, However, they found that their freedom was under attack, both by whites and by other Native Americans. In 1848, a decade after they had made the agreement with the U.S. government, the U.S. Attorney General announced that the government never had the authority, uh, the power to recognize their freedom. And in fact, they were still, those who had been slaves, still enslaved. This was like opening season on them. Uh, basically declaring that they were there for the picking. And so uh, they did the only thing they could do. They fled once again. Without security in Indian Territory, Horse and his Seminole ally, Coacuchi, promptly went to Mexico, where slavery was already illegal and had been for a couple of decades. There, Horse became famous as a general in the Mexican army, and his people found a way to uh, make a life. Once they relocated to Mexico, things changed. When slave catchers from the Republic of Texas went over the border to try to find the runaway slaves, now free men, they met resistance not only from the black Seminoles, but also from the Mexicans and the Mexican army itself. 
Eventually, the uh, Black Seminoles, led by Horace, gained legally recognized uh, Mexican land, Nacimiento. Why isn't this recognized today? Well, for one thing, historians tend to be historians of Native American history or historians of slavery, but there's not many that move among these subjects. And it's a bit confusing because you have both the issue of runaway slaves and the issue of Native Americans kind of blended together. So it seems to fall through the cracks. Tradition is that Nat Turner's rebellion is the big turning point in the history of slavery and slave revolt. But that happened before the rebellion of the Black Seminoles. So it doesn't really fit the traditional trajectory. And perhaps most importantly, it really represents a blemish on U.S. history, not only because of the poor treatment of Native America as represented by the Seminole War, not only the poor treatment of African Americans through the device of slavery, but also because this group really did manage to negotiate a separate peace with the U.S. government, and 10 years later, the government turned their backs on them. So it's, in multiple ways, a difficult story for people of the United States to tell. But it's worth remembering that a community of freedom fighters trekked from Florida to Oklahoma to Mexico and found, ultimately, peace and freedom and prosperity in lives that they could direct as their own. I recommend highly the website johnhorse.com for more information. Welcome back, and that was on the uh, Black Seminole Wars against the United States government during the 19th century. We'll close out uh, with uh, Lorraine Hansberry from her classic address of June 1964 in New York City. I wrote a letter to the New York Times recently which didn't get printed, <laughs> which is getting to be my rapport with the New York Times. They said that it was too personal what it, what it concerned itself with was I was in a bit of a stew over the Stalin. Because when the Stalin was first announced, I said, oh my God, now everybody's going crazy, you know, tying up traffic, what's the matter with you know, who needs it? And then I noticed the reaction, starting in Washington and coming on up to New York among what we're all here calling the, the white liberal circles, which was something like, you know, you Negroes act right or you're going to ruin everything we're trying to do, you know. <laughs> and that got me to thinking more seriously about the strategy and the tactic that the Stalin intended to accomplish. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times. I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, who was... Uh, you know, real American-type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, it was the sort of American who put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after goals. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted 
area where no Negroes were supposed to live and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do, and it eventually uh, resulted in a, a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. But the problem is that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. My father died a disillusioned exile in another country. That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. Can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication of transformation of their situation, from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? They've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time, uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. I would like to submit that the problem is that yes, there is a problem about white liberal. The problem is we have to find some way with these dialogues to, to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. I think that then it wouldn't, when that becomes true, some of the really eloquent things that were said before about the basic fabric of our society, which, after all, is the thing which must be changed, you know, uh, to, to, to really solve the problem. You know, the, the, the basic organization of American society is the thing that has Negroes in the situation that they are in, and never let us lose sight of it. It is entirely different, you see, the way that you would assess the Vietnamese War and the way I would, because I can't believe... believe that anyone who is given what an American Negro is given, you know, our viewpoint, can believe that a government which has at its disposal a Federal Bureau of Investigation which cannot ever find the murders of Negroes, and by that method never, no, and shows that it cares really very little about American citizens who are black, really are over somewhere fighting a war for a bunch of other colored people, you know. Uh, several thousand miles, you just have a different viewpoint. This, this is why we want the dialogue, to, to explain that to you. I, I think, uh, since we closed on a peculiar note for the break, that I, for one, would like to identify my position. Uh, radicalism is not alien to this country, neither black nor white. And we have a very great tradition of white radicalism in the United States. And I've never heard Negroes boo the name of John Brown. So there's no problem 
no matter how excited we get, I think ultimately anybody at this table who wants to read any patriot out of the Negro movement, it's not the point. Some of the first people who have died so far in this struggle have been white men. And I, for one, would be prepared, I must say, an exception to anything said, to accept the leadership of a person who gives that much devotion as against someone who would exhibit the uh, traitorous characters of, of uh, say, a Moise Chambé. Uh, I don't think that we can decide ultimately on the basis of color. The passion that we express should be understood, I think, in that context. We want total identification. It's not a question of reading anybody out. It's, it's a merger, but it has to be a merger on the basis of true and genuine equality. And if we think that it isn't going to be painful, we're mistaken. I know that you, for instance, are an admirer of our late president, and he presumed, with all respect to the dead, I, but he happens to have been our president, so I have to talk about him that way, uh, to have suggested to the world that if our foreign policy were not honored with regard to Cuba, that we would blow up the world, you see. And we live in a nation where everything which is talked about is talked about in terms of the fact that we are going to be the mightiest, the toughest, the roughest cats going, you know, in the whole world. And, and when a Negro says something about, I'm tired, I can't stand it no more, I want to hit somebody, you say that we're sitting here panting and ranting for violence, you know? It's not right. I think it's very simple that the, the question of the, the whole idea of debating whether or not Negroes should defend themselves is an insult. That was Lorraine Hansberry, and that's going to conclude our program. We'll close out with Hank Mobley's, Mobley's message. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off. Have a beautiful week.
Thank <laughs> you. 